Christian author um, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book a few decades ago called How Should We Then Live? In other words, given everything that we now know and understand, how do we respond minute by minute, day by day, decade by decade, over a lifetime? It's quite a question for a Christian to wrestle with. Or anyone for that matter who's trying to live out of a a particular approach to life. As I've pondered about that question this week, I realise in one form or another I've been grappling with it ever since I was, as an 18-year-old, dragged kicking and screaming into God's kingdom. Initially, I grappled with making amends with those that I had wronged, learned to be honest and not to steal, by apologising to the people that I'd lied to and confessing to people that I'd stolen from. That was excruciating, but very character-forming. Then there was the purge of my music collection, this was in the mid-80s, and other non-Christian stuff I was into, which on reflection was less significant. But I drank a lot, and the rugby club culture that I was a part of, who all will be mourning the overnight loss, I'm sure, and needed to quit for several years to get back on an even keel. That was good to do. For the next decade, I was learning to think Christianly and to follow the Lord, to pray as a participant in a conversation, then to learn and apply biblical truth into my lived experience, none of which I'd ever done before. I can remember the first time I tried praying. I got about two sentences in and I thought, mate, you've lost the plot. You're talking to the wall. Has it come to this? But I needed to do that in my friendships as a university student working for a living, as a young married, and as a new father. In all the roles and relationships of life, I needed to learn how now should I live. Life was then and is still now my classroom. And the biggest thing I think when I look back on that era of my life that I learned is that the Lord truly loved me and is gracious to me and cares for me. That was easily the biggest take-home of my 20s. And it still brings me up short as it is now when I think about it or talk about it. Well, in the first chapters of Romans... Paul uh, really gets up ahead of steam. He's expounding this Christian message, what he understands it to mean. His vision of growing this new God, growing this new community. There's Jew and there's Gentile, all no longer held captive by sin, but infused with the power of God's Spirit, who live together in union with Christ. It's the big Christian theoretical exposition. In Romans 12 to 15, that I've been wandering my way through for this last while, is like the practical end of the Romans course. Okay, given all that theory, this is now how we should live. In Romans um, 12, 1 to 2, 
which kicks the course off, bears repeating. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Okay. That's the high-level answer. That we are to devote ourselves to a worshipful life and not let the world shape us or mould us into its image, but rather allow the Spirit to transform us, to transform our minds. Well, then Paul drops down a level. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we have a series of little modules that make up his course on applied Christianity. Uh, Romans 12, 3 to 8, that I did a few weeks ago. You know, we are one body, each with different contributions to make, so play nice with each other. That's the first one. Then it was 12, 9 to 21. Practical love is the mark of true faith. And then 13, 1 to 7, we should try and live in peace with the state. Well, today is module four. And the first bit of today's text from Romans 13 reads like this. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Well, we're back to love again. And it's described here as a debt, which can never be fully paid because it's ongoing. It's how we're meant to relate to each other if the Spirit has transformed us. We can never love too much in the true sense of that word love. To love someone is when we act in their best interests and thereby show care, not just keeping the commandments, not just keeping the rules. If you think about it, the rich young ruler from Jesus' story kept all the commandments, but Jesus challenged him to go further by donating his wealth to the poor and to follow him. Love has a positive dimension to it. I show my love for you by what I give you or how I serve you. That is what the best version of Rod would do. Now in the ancient world, you loved your family and you loved your patron. And the patron was the person further up the food chain than you, who you served and who in turn looked after you. Paul telling them and us to love all of our neighbours was a real big shift. Now, today we love our family. We love our besties. 
And if you aspire to love more widely than that, you'll find yourself called a do-gooder or an idealist. People who care about social justice or the needs of the two-third world are often mocked, in my observation. But I am encouraged by the emerging generation who seem a lot less cynical about that sort of stuff than folk of my vintage. And that's a real good thing. We are called to love broadly, not just to love those who will love us back. Now, if we love, then we fulfill the law, as it says up here. So does that make the law a little bit superfluous or unnecessary? For example, if I love you, then I'm looking to what I can give you, not what I can steal from you. Moral love absorbs good conduct and morality, but it goes further. If I truly love my wife, I won't commit adultery by sleeping with someone else, okay? But I also won't flirt with someone else either. Nor will I share private confidences with a woman that I find attractive. I will avoid affairs of the heart or little secret connections, as well as the full-on physical adultery stuff. We are called to be more than just obeying the letter of the Ten Commandments, the law. We are called to be our best selves. Romans 8, 3-4 says this. I think it's a very significant scripture. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, this is the key bit, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're to walk according to the Spirit. Does that mean then that anything goes? No, it doesn't. The best metaphor that I have heard to describe this is to imagine that we are flying a plane. Our journey through the sky is powered by aviation fuel, which is the power of the Holy Spirit which God pours into his children in abundance, into you and me. And when we come into land, there are those lights that show us the runway where we can land the plane safely, and, and if we land outside of those um, lights, well, we might skid off and end up in a heap, or we might collect another plane, and it could be on the news. Those lights are like the moral law, don't steal, don't murder and all that, which help guide us to stay within God's moral law. So the moral law helps us just keep our bearings, to know where we are, but within that space, we live by the Spirit. And that is where we are, our best selves. Well, Paul continued in this module, Romans 13. Besides this, you know what time it is? How it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us live honourably as in the day, not in revelling and drunkenness, nor in debauchery, licentiousness, not in quarrelling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh 
to gratify its desires. I think it was George W. Bush who famously said that the future is now closer than it has ever been before. I think it was him. And I guess by definition that must be true, but it's not all that helpful or meaningful. Reading in the New Testament that the second coming is imminent seems that a bit odd given that 2,000 years later, here we are still here. And I feel sure that the Roman church would be dumbfounded to know that we are still waiting for Jesus to come back. But here we are. But not just them. Anyone remember this guy? Very big when I wandered into the church in 1985. Had I said then that we would still be here 40 years later, I would have been accused of being some sort of dodgy liberal Christian who needed to study the book of Revelation more and read this man's book, who I think had said we were coming back and he was coming back in 1978. Surprisingly, he was still selling books after that point. The modern evangelical Christian church has had its bags packed ready to leave the earth since about the First World War. But still we wait. There was a church back in Auckland, in central Auckland, just before the First World War, who was big into the second coming thing. And they were thinking, you know, do we have a building project and buy our own place, or do we just lease a hall? Well, hey, Jesus is coming back, so let's just lease and save our money. Well, that was 120 years ago. Perhaps they should have bought. I suggested to someone recently that maybe one day the 21st century church might be seen as part of the early church. They didn't look well impressed. And they said to me, with COVID, the Ukrainian war and general unrest, do you still think, Rod, that the second coming is not upon us? And I just smiled. My questioner didn't have much sense of history to me for, for me to appeal to, so I thought, no, I'm not going to go there. But here's why. In 1920, a plague far worse than COVID-19 swept the globe, killing maybe 100 million people. 100 million. Then about 5% of the world's population. 5% of today's population, today's population, would be 400 million people. Think about that for a minute. Much of the world had just suffered through this thing they called the Great War, the war to end all wars, which had maybe left 20 million people dead. The Russian Revolution had just toppled the ancient Christian kingdom of Russia, and atheistic communism was spreading everywhere like wildfire. And to top it all off, those of you who did fifth form or year 11 history will know that 1917, Britain, who was administering Palestine at the time, issued what was called the Balfour Declaration, which said there would be a homeland for the Jewish people. But no second coming then, despite this slew of end-time signals being given. 30 years later, 1948, Second World War had just finished. There's the First World War in that period. Second World War. Perhaps with 120 million people dead. Countless others displaced as refugees. Cold War between West and East was getting, was getting going with Stalin's blockade of Berlin. 
Nuclear weapons were a new reality and Europe was starting to talk about creating a common market. The Jewish homeland against the odds was birthed and survived the attacks of those who pledged to drive it into the sea. But still no second coming. Despite this tsunami of end time signals. The problem, I think, with the cottage industry of predicting Jesus' return is that he was quite clear. He will come like a thief in the night. Now, a good thief will not be seen or heard. I've, we've often left our house with um, my son James there and thinking, I don't know if he'd notice a burglar because he's on the computer and he's got his headphones on. Some of you relate. A good thief will not be seen or heard, so it might be some time before you realise you've been robbed. There was this amazing programme uh, a few years ago which featured a couple of supposedly ex-New Zealand burglars who would be in and out of a house in 10 minutes. And they knew the sorts of places that people hid their jewellery and their money and all the rest of it. I say supposedly ex-burglars because a year or two later one got, burgled, uh, got convicted for burglary so they'd gone back to the trade. No one will know the day or hour when Jesus returns. But here, Paul anchors his call to applied Christianity that he's been preaching in Romans 12 and 13 to the nearness of their final salvation. And if you look at God's list, if you can imagine God having a list, there'll be creation, judgment by the flood, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses and the law, promised land, exile, Jesus, church. Second coming is the next one on the list. Number nine. Because it's the last chapter before the whole thing gets wrapped up in universal resurrection and judgment. Jesus wants us to live as if he was coming back tomorrow at about half nine. He wants us to live with the ultimate goal of God's big story of salvation right in front of their faces, of our faces here. Now, I guest preached a sermon um, once, and when I got to the door, I looked up, and there was a face right in front of me, this guy standing. And he said, you know what you said about Jesus' disciples being spotty teenagers? Yeah. You were wrong. They were big, buff fishermen like this. And I thought for the moment, and with a rare moment of wit, I said, but what did you think about my main point? <laughs> then we had a nice chat. Well, Jesus is in our faces too. Saying we might have coffee together tomorrow. Would we live differently if we knew that he was en route? Now. I found table mats. There's the fisherman guy. I found this table mat. I love it. I bought them. Paul seems to be saying... Live now as if he was coming back tomorrow. 
And I know if he was and he was going to join me for a coffee here at 9.30, I'd be working on my barista technique all night. He might need milk and that could be a problem. When verse 12, we are told to put aside the things that we can get away with when no one is watching. There's an uncomfortable list. Instead, we had to live honourably and openly. So no drunken parties, sexual adventuring, or ungodly conflicts. Instead, we had to put on the Lord Jesus. I find that an interesting turn of phrase. It's like putting on a coat. He wants us to be our best selves. Now, my best self is when I live moderately with good self-control. When I don't finish all the sausage rolls or the lolly cake or have that extra glass of wine that I don't need. That's gluttony. We each have different demons that call to us and gluttony is one of mine. And I think we need to know what they are because they'll be different for each of us. And to have them in view. Keep an eye on them. If gambling is a thing for you, the racetrack's probably not a great place to hang out, no matter how much you might like horses. Also, I am my best self when I don't indulge in quarrelling. And having previously been a lawyer, I quite like quarrelling. I have some skills in that department. Now, you can have disagreements, sure. In fact, I think a church with no disagreements is a church in trouble. You've got to be able to let them come to the surface. But my best self pulls his punches and doesn't get all smug and gloaty. My best self tries to preserve the possibility of a relationship with the person that I am at odds with, not to torch it just because I can. For me, I need to be quick to apologise when I've stuffed up, rather than getting all defensive or self-righteous. And finally, my best self keeps short accounts. He does not stew on real or perceived slights, does not gossip or become bitter. Your best self will be a different combo, but can I urge you to take these verses away and reflect on them and think about them. And if you're really brave, ask your partner. They'll have some thoughts, guarantee it. This holy living thing is really difficult. If we see it as something that we do in our own strength. It's not mentioned here in Romans 13, but remember that in Romans 12, 1 to 2, this, uh, that's the spring from which all these modules flow from and relate back to. God's spirit is transforming us moment by moment, day by day, decade by decade into his image and likeness. He is the potter. We are the clay. Clay doesn't make itself into an ashtray. Potter makes clay into an ashtray. That's a very, very important thing not to lose sight of. Because if you do, it can be overwhelming. Our most important task is to cooperate with that process and know that he will not force it on us. 
Interesting thing about the verse that um, Stu read out, Revelation 3.20. It's actually written to one of the churches in Revelation. It's not really an evangelistic verse. It's a verse about discipleship. But it's still true. Jesus is knocking on the door saying, I think I might be able to do a better job of running your life than you can. But we can still push him away. We choose every day whether we will engage with the Lord. We can undermine the work of the Spirit in our lives if we want to. Our freedom to follow Jesus has not gone away. But can I urge you to be the living sacrifice that does not crawl off the altar? Normally sacrifices are dead, they aren't going anywhere. But we're a living one. But stay close to the author and finisher of our faith. He who began a good work in me and in you will be faithful to complete it if we will just let him. Amen. Thank you. The musicians would like to come up.